What up, guys? Today on Women of Impact, I've got back one of my favorite freaking guests on the planet, my girl, the holistic psychologist, Nicole LaPera. And she is here today to break down our triggers. Guys, let's just be honest. We've all had probably more than one massive explosive reaction and we have maybe regretted it or maybe feel embarrassed or ashamed about it. And that can end up really freaking derailing our goals, our dreams, how we show up in the world, and then how we feel about ourselves. And so Nicole today shares how on earth we can identify our triggers, how we can better emotionally react to our triggers, and how, guys, we don't shame ourselves for being triggered But we do hold ourselves accountable to the fact that we get triggered and then how we navigate through them. And then lastly, this is the episode because she's such a close friend of mine. I didn't expect it, guys. But in going deep in talking about heartache and trauma and things that really impact us, um, I was able to be extremely vulnerable. And I definitely caught myself by surprise by getting emotional by talking about matters of the heart. And so let's just dive in right now and have a very raw and vulnerable conversation with my girl, the holistic psychologist, Nicole LaPera. And guys, if this episode did bring you value, please, please do leave a review, share it with your homies, tell people about Women of Impact, and let's make global change together. Now, on to the episode. Because who wants to scream and yell at our loved ones? Who wants to live a life that is completely numb? Today on Women of Impact... The amazing holistic psychologist Nicole LaPera reveals the truth that holds us back. You're tapping into something so strong right now, and how the power of your heart, I don't want to get all emotional, what? can heal your trauma. I had a lot of shame around my body. How we feel in our skin very much does translate to how we feel about our self. Dude, you just sorry to interrupt you. Holy smoke, that is like a massive aha moment. Get ready for a masterclass for your mind and your heart right now. Nicola Pera, welcome back to Women of Impact. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. Oh my God, homie, I freaking adore you. You've got your new book, How to Meet Yourself. And where I really want to start is so many of us um, react to certain things. We get triggered in situations, whether it's in relationships with our partners, whether it's in business or with our friends. And I don't know about you, but so many of us, the next day, we regret the things we've said. We regret the things we've done. We don't think, we don't show up as our true selves. And you really talk so eloquently about triggers, about where triggers come from, about how we can identify them and how we can start working through them so that they no longer become triggers. And so that's where I really want to start. So if you don't mind breaking down the different types of triggers, um, and then we'll go from there. Absolutely. I mean, I think you're, you're saying a whole mouthful when you're acknowledging how few of us are connected and or living from our authentic space. And I think those moments of reactivity are really prime evidence for how shameful so many of us can feel when we're in those explosive situations. And ultimately, I will make a case. And my hope for the workbook is to really make a case for all of you on this journey that those moments really aren't who we are, whether it's the habits that we're living daily or those moments where we can't navigate our emotions, oftentimes they are coming from our past experiences, coming from environments where very few of us were taught how to safely regulate our feelings. And what happens in our current adult moments is 
as if we go back in time mm. in this time warp, which is a little bit of the reason why it feels a bit immature and we feel so shameful when we're living those explosive reactions. So I think to understand where we're coming from when we're not behaving in alignment with what our heart wants, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, we are all compassionate or have the ability to be compassionate, connected humans. So understanding you know, why we're exploding, I think, gives us part of uh, the elixir, if you will, the healing, though, of course, then it's how do I shift in those moments? So if I understand this isn't me, how do I create the space to reconnect with what I really want to do, say, or how I really want to be in those moments? Yeah, oh my God, God. <laughs> like when you said the word shame, 100% that hit me, right? How many of us feel shameful after we've mm-hmm. had this? And when you want to show up, and I like to use the word badass, right? Badass, yes. confident, enter a relationship where you feel like you've got your own back, that you can actually be yourself um, or in work. The thing that does hold us back a lot, I do think, is our reaction to things, is we can't control other people, but the thing that we can hopefully control is ourselves. But when we don't know where it comes from, when we don't know why we're having these reactive moments, it can feel very overwhelming and we can feel lost in not knowing how to handle it. And I actually got a quote of yours that I love. Um, childhood trauma doesn't come back as a feeling. It comes back as a reaction. When people look like they're overreacting to something, they're not. Yes. So take me back to then how we start to identify where this is coming from, what different types of triggers there are, and then how we can start to peel back the onion, understanding them, and then start to, I don't know, reverse probably isn't the right word, but maybe um, come to a place where we're no longer having those triggers dictate how we show up. What's, I think, really important to understand in in that quote as well is also not to minimize. While Mm. our feelings do feel disproportionate, for lack of a bigger word, really big for whatever objectively might be happening, I think some of us might seek to like minimize or maybe we've been told we're so dramatic, our emotions are so over the top. And I think a really kind of point I want to hammer home before I kind of go into what to do, how to navigate these moments differently is just to create some space to honor the feelings that we're having. Because while they might not be objectively mapping on to what's happening now, there is a similarity in circumstance and context in underlying feeling that we're having that's contributing to their bigness. And I say this because there's so many of us who have lived a lifetime of shaming ourselves for our emotions in particular, Mm -hmm. of having this idea that we need to suppress or squash them down and not allow them the space that they are. Because when we're talking about these emotional reactions, we actually are talking about things that are sensations that are stored in our body that for many of us have been accumulating from a lifetime of similarly overwhelming experiences. And without support in our childhood, without someone to help us feel safe as we're having bigger and bigger emotions to make sense of them and then to figure out how to bring myself back into regulation or really simply calm, Mm. a responsive, grounded place where I can say, okay, I'm feeling this emotion. I might take the information that it's giving me and I can still make a choice about what I do next. When we don't have that modeling, when we don't have that lived experience with another caregiver who can join us on that journey of making sense of our emotions, we are going to rely on a much more reactive way because that, for many of us, is the only way we can 
find safety, whether it's the exploders out there mm-hmm. who scream and yell, right, when we're outwardly upset at something or when we're inwardly, I should say, upset with something, it comes outward in our expression. And then, of course, we have the many of us who maybe we're not screaming and yelling, maybe we're avoiding we're distracting ourselves. We're numbing the way that we feel, or we're avoiding uncomfortable conversations or experiences altogether, again, as our main way of keeping ourselves safe. And then, of course, we have the whole bunch of us, myself was very much part of this group, who, because stress was so consistently present and I was so under supported for so long, screaming and yelling only worked a bit, removing myself only worked a bit. And then we, the last step on that ultimate train is becoming completely disconnected living, as I say, on a spaceship where I feel numb, I feel aloof, and I don't really feel connected to the space around me. So those are just simple examples of what is really based in an overwhelming response. The only way I can create safety is by becoming reactive in that way, and that's what we'll see our then self doing Mm -hmm. somewhere in time into adulthood, of course, feeling very shameful because who wants to scream and yell at our loved ones? Who wants to avoid things that are uncomfortable? Who wants to live a life that is completely numb. But again, at one time, that was the only way that we were able to keep ourselves safe when we didn't have someone helping us navigate our emotions calmly, which then becomes the task in adulthood. How do I create that space to see my emotions for what they are and to still be able to choose what I do next and remain connected to those around me and myself when I'm choosing what I'm doing next? Yeah. Oh my God, that was so amazing. To See our emotions for what they are. That was so powerful because so many of us judge our emotions. I shouldn't be feeling this way. So especially when it comes to triggers, because the other person is almost looking at you like, what the fuck is going on? Right? Because if you don't understand another person's wounds or triggers or childhood trauma, their reaction may seem like you've like, like, hang on a minute, you're crazy. It's like, oh my God, I can't handle this. And it seems like it's overreaction, but really does stem from something um, deep. And so being able to view it, how on earth do you start doing that? Because I think so much of us judge ourselves based on other people judging us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, judgment, I think for many of us, going back even to shame, as we talked a bit about earlier, I mean, so many of us are so internalized with this process of feeling shameful. And it does come from this imagined idea of what we think and maybe what we hear Mm. other people, you Mm. know, are assessing us to be or not be in those moments. And, you know, to speak to your point, I think the more understanding that we have of what's happening inside us, that oftentimes then allows us to gift that same understanding to partners Mm. who are having explosive responses, right, that we can't understand a big shift happens when you see someone. They might be behaving unsavorably in some way. And of course, this isn't to condone abuse. We always need to have boundaries that are up. But I'm going to have a much different experience if I see you having what I might deem as an overreaction. If I view it or if I'm only reacting to maybe you're screaming and you're yelling or maybe you're ignoring me. If I am only seeing the surface, likely I'm going to be hurt. You might say something mean. You might not participate in a conversation that I'm feeling is important. So I might feel silenced in that moment. That's going to be really different than if I'm able to stand in the compassionate space of understanding, oh, I might not like that you're screaming and I might not not like what you're saying. I might really want to have this conversation with you if you're avoiding me. However, if I see that this is coming from fear, if I can understand that you're feeling destabilized now, I might not know exactly why I might not be feeling the same But in my opinion, that really does then create more space 
for a new response, for something different than is reacting right to the hurt feeling mm. that on the surface is initially what comes up. Oh my God, that's so powerful. So I think it all stems from the knowing yourself, right? Understanding yourself, right. understanding your own triggers. Once you start to learn, you can then project. And there's actually one thing that recently Tom and I have been saying, so what would have to be true for that person to react in that way? Because I think of script writing, I think, okay, if I was to write the script and this person right now is screaming at me because I said, I don't like your shirt. What would have to be true that I've hurt them so much by me saying I don't like their shirt? Okay, let me backtrack. Maybe they were teased as a kid for the way they looked and they built their confidence just enough mm. to find the courage just to wear one shirt. And so now what I've done is trigger them. And so I try to kind of backtrack and just use the phrase, what would have to be true for them, them to experience this moment as overwhelm, anxiety, when I'm not sure what has happened to actually warrant, quote unquote, that behavior. Yeah, I think that's a really, really beautiful way to look at it. And the more information, of course, mm. when we're talking about our close friends, our loved ones, our partners, you know, some of us can fill in that story, though we, we don't have to. And oftentimes it is that explosive person who's arguing with the world around us. I mean, some of us, that becomes our character. It's outside of these moments of where I'm upset and you don't like my shirt. I mean, some of us are so defensive by nature. I could go as far as to call it yeah. nature. And again, make an argument as so far as that there was a reason, right? There's a reason that this person had to become so defensive probably in childhood where being defensive, wearing that armor, maybe even fighting or scrapping my way through instances of overwhelming feelings, whether it was abuse or neglect or whatever it was in our home. For some of us, that was our only way mm -hmm. of, you know, creating some semblance of safety or grounding. And again, we when we look on the surface, that really defensive person can be very difficult to relate to, to connect mm -hmm. with. But when we shift that focus and understand that that served them, all of our habits, as far as I'm concerned, and a big reason why I'm always talking about how habitual we are, all of our habits are grounded in a best kept or a best attempt at creating safety, at adapting to an environment. The problem becomes when we continue to repeat those habits as our environments shift and change, as our relationships shift and change, as we grow and develop and mature and have access to other tools. Because the reality of it is in those emotional moments, we're going to rely on those habitual reactions mm -hmm. because at one time, not only do they keep us safe, they're predictable. Mm -hmm. I know what happens next. I know if I scream loud enough, that threat will go away. And that's safer than what if I don't scream loud enough? The, the, un, the unpredictability of what happens next in new choices will keep us locked in the patterns, especially when our, we're threatened, especially when we feel unsafe. Oh my God. Okay. So in saying all that, girl, how do we start to identify these habits? Because I actually love what you're saying. And there was um, something in your book. I can't remember the exact phrase, but it's something like actions are not who we are. Yes. Um, how then? I love that because it's non-judgmental. It's beautiful. But knowing that it comes from our childhood, knowing that it Look, this may not be, ex you know, who you are, but it is a habit that you have adopted from childhood. How do we start to identify that? In fact, let's go deeper onto the triggers and then how we start to identify the habits that are tied to the triggers. Because I didn't even think about the fact that, that even triggers have different categories. Yes. So I, I yesed pretty much any version <laughs> of what you said I said, because in my opinion, what, what the workbook is about is 
discovering, exploring our habit self, mm-hmm. all of the habits and patterns that create the life around us, create our day, create our relationships, and of course, growing conscious of them so that we can begin to make choices that are more in alignment with with what we want. So I probably said multiple versions because throughout the book, we what we really mm-hmm. are exploring is how to become conscious of those habits. I, I always will talk about the foundation of change being that practice of conscious awareness, mm-hmm. learning how to see ourselves. What are the habits that create our day? Imagining that maybe some listeners are probably shaking their heads and wondering, oh, I don't have habits. What do you mean? I have actually I'm, I'm problematic because I need to have habits and I don't mm-hmm. have them. In reality, we all have habits. We have habits in terms of the way we naturally care for our body. How is it that you sleep? You eat, you rest, you move, you breathe. All of that has become, more often than not for most of us in adulthood, very habitual. Mm -hmm. Peeling back a layer, of course, and we begin the journey in the workbook with that body, really taking a deep dive, exploring all of those different habits that we could have, many of which we learned in childhood, most of which might not be serving the unique body that we are born into then we peel back that next layer into the mind mm. and begin to explore all of the different habitual behaviors again through this conscious process of observation, seeing ourselves, actually waking up, say, tomorrow morning and paying attention. Don't allow that autopilot to drift you through your day, take you through those morning habits. Actually observe what are the first few things that you do in the morning? What does your mealtime habits look like? in terms of your emotions or your mental habits, beginning to pay more attention to your thoughts. You'll discover quite soon that we're not telling ourselves new unique tales throughout the day. We are talking to ourselves throughout the day. Most of us, though, are narrating our life in, you've guessed it, a very habitual way. Mm. We're filtering everything that's happening to us, happening to us telling ourselves the same story. So the way we can see our habit self and create a bit of space to start to make new choices is by paying attention, learning how to be that conscious observer and either seeing externally how we're participating in our life or internally Mm. and how that is coloring how we're externally participating in our life. I'm going to be utterly honest. There is little more damaging to your confidence than feeling weak and helpless and just struggling to get the care that you actually need from your doctor. And trust me, guys, I unfortunately speak from experience because when I was struggling with crippling, crippling gut issues about nine years ago now, it took me years, years to find a doctor that not only could I connect with, but a doctor that actually would listen, wouldn't gaslight me and actually take my words and my experience as truth so that they could actually eventually help me heal and not just to give me another freaking pill and then push me out the door. But now, my homie, you don't have to struggle to find the right doctor for you anymore. And that's thanks to ZocDoc. ZocDoc is an absolutely free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and then instantly book appointments with them online. And with ZocDoc, you can actually filter by insurance, location and specialities to find the perfect fit for you, not for your friend, not for anyone else, but for you. Plus, on top of that, you can actually go and read verified reviews from real patients to find the doc that you can actually trust. And typically, wait times for booking an appointment are days, not weeks. Because let's face it, when you're sick, you need to see someone right now. So my homie, do not, I repeat, do not neglect your health. Instead, go over to ZocDoc.com dot com slash Lisa and download the ZocDoc app for 
absolutely free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's zocdoc z o c d o c dot com slash Lisa zocdoc dot com slash Lisa. Oh my God! That's what I love about your book. Like you really do hold people's hand all the way through. Um, how do we start to identify what habit is? I'm going to use the word good or bad. You probably hate that. In fact, what better words are there? Because would you would you say a habit is good or bad? I would say it is objectively. Okay, a I habit just is. Okay, and then we get to decide, of course, if the result of that habit right is in alignment with the direction that we want to see our life going in, and or if it isn't. And I'm only pausing on that because. I think when we do get into judgment mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. good, bad, I mean, first we have to unbox how subjective, right? I could sit here and tell you what's good for me and you could be like, oh, that's actually terrible. It's not good. It's right. bad for me. Um, we are very black and white in our thinking. And I think, again, that could back us into a corner. So when we're talking about being conscious, it's about being objective. So just literally seeing habits for what they are. They're just a habitual pattern. Mm-hmm. That is all. And then how do I so love that. I love your answers. So if we do that, how do we then start to see if it does align with our true selves? Because very often, I'm just going to speak for myself. Very often, I can convince myself something because I either believe want it so badly or don't want something so badly. So as humans, I think we're really easy—not easy, but we adapt to ourselves of what we. It feels comfortable right now mm-hmm. instead of calling ourselves out on what may not actually be in alignment. Yes. And I mean, what a mouthful of wisdom in terms of we will always gravitate to what is comfortable now. And what is comfortable now, again, like I said earlier, is what is familiar now. Mm-hmm. So this is where it becomes really difficult for some of us to not only have a more objective vantage point, because as I like to say it, we are blinder to ourselves. I know me so well. I know all of the filters of my life. I've excluded things that don't fit in with how I imagine myself and my life to be. And it's really hard for me to pull myself and kind of hover above and mm-hmm. see the parts, the aspects of me, right, that, that I'm missing. So learning, I think, how to, to see the more fuller picture mm-hmm. and really being honest, I think, is another part of the journey in terms of whether or not the decisions I'm making now, which might feel good because they're comfortable, do they serve what I want, what I desire, the direction, right, that I want to go to? And ultimately, that becomes our individual process. So it's getting clear on an objective about, okay, well, what are the habits that are that are happening, that I'm living? What choices am I making or what reactions are, are participating in mm-hmm. creating the life around me? And then really taking that moment of assessment. You know, does this feel good? good? Does this be, is this in a direction that's taking me closer to whatever it is that I imagine that I want for myself? And if we have the supportive friends, the loved ones, of course, of a trusted nature, not opening ourselves up to feedback from people that really don't know us, they can often offer us and sometimes offer us in moments where we don't want to hear mm-hmm. their feedback, that more objective vantage point. This is where we do start to hear from relationships, maybe habits that don't serve the relationship. We maybe do get feedback from partners in these explosive moments that, you know, we're hurting feelings. And then we can allow someone else's perspective to be part of our journey. But of course, this is for trusted people. This isn't opening ourselves up for mm-hmm. feedback from a million people on the internet who don't know us. But it's learning, again, separation, 
Can I view my habits? Can I do so objectively? And can I get really honest about the role I'm playing and how close that brings me to my desired outcome? How do you do that if you're still feeling the wound, like you're still really living in the trauma, bringing back those types of things can be another trigger, couldn't it? Absolutely. And and anytime, I mean, really even going back to these moments of being activated, being yeah. destabilized, being explosive or being, you know, avoidant, whatever it is. And again, the reason why the workbook begins with that journey in the body is because safety is, is so incredibly important. Creating, you know, the ability to feel that discomfort, be connected to it and return myself to peace, to calm, to balance is, is absolutely 100% part of that journey. So when I hear you say, you know, what if the wound is active? What if I'm having all of the feels? I'm upset. I'm dysregulated. Mm -hmm. Then not only are we talking kind of logically, oh, well, yes, just find that moment of peace and calm. We're actually talking about those body-based tools, mm -hmm. ways to connect with my body, to release that overwhelming energy or to ground it and calm it if it's too much and too overwhelming. And for a big reason, understanding the role of the body was a big reason that I shifted my practice from was very much more of a traditional mm. cerebral, let's just theorize about this because what I had seen time and time again is no amount of theory, want better in those moments of reactivity can shift the way my body is reacting because my body is playing an absolute role. If my body doesn't feel safe, it's only a matter of time before I'm trying again to regulate in those older habitual ways. I love that so much because I'm definitely the person I try to think my way through everything. Right. I try to think my way through my own emotions. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, Lisa, you're feeling this, but come on, you shouldn't be feeling. Right. But I use all the bad, the mm -hmm. shouldn'ts, which I always try to catch myself in real time. Um, but so often we do that um, where well, I should say at least in, in our space where it's like, oh, you listen to the podcast, you read the books, right? And she's like, I know what to do. Yeah. It's like, you know, and it's like, I can think my way through without actually listening to the body. So now when people are listening to this right now, how do they start to do that? Because I think it's so beautiful to open up that connection between the mind, the body. And you've said like our body holds so much trauma. Um, and so I didn't even ever really think about the body holding trauma. I always thought, oh, if I don't... If my brain doesn't go there, then I'm fine. Right. And very true to form, so many of us mm -hmm. actually rely on thinking about right. our emotions as a, a form of escape. I lived my whole life from my shoulders up, mm. whether it was always analyzing the racing thoughts that I have, endless self-analysis, and then over time becoming so overwhelmed by that, I just, oh, completely checked out. And my mind went blank. And it was as if there was no body from the shoulders down for me. And a lot of us can enter into thinking, overanalyzing and mis misinterpret and think that what we're doing is, oh, I'm being conscious. And again, conscious is a state of observation. It's actually not a state of endless critical thinking, judging, self-analysis, trying to convince our way out of emotions at all. Again, understanding that though is a adaptation. Chances are that was a safer space, my mind, than spending time in that body. So when I talk about consciousness, it's learning not only how to be the observer, I break down very accordingly to the three sections of the book. We talk about body consciousness in that mm -hmm. whole first section and how can I begin to tune in to my body? Can I use my breath as a hook of my attention? Can I use my sensations? I mean, I'm sitting in a very nice, comfortable chair right now. Can I actually simply tune into how it feels to be in my Nicole's body 
in this chair. Mm -hmm. That might sound so simplistic for listeners, but for those of us who spend so much time in our minds, distract it, disconnect it, actually turning attention to what it feels like, my thighs, my back, these lovely cushions, is a, is a big shift of consciousness. And once I begin to consistently make that shift into my body, what then I will be met with likely is all of the sensations that I've accumulated over time. Because even if we've gotten very good at being distracted, at being disconnected, at not thinking that we're feeling anything because we're not paying attention to it, it doesn't mean that our body hasn't been accumulated it. And the reason, again, that we've probably shifted our focus for so long was because it, it's too uncomfortable in this, in this body. So learning how to, A, notice when I'm in my spaceship, in my balloon, endlessly thinking, distracting myself with thoughts, whatever it might be, and then learning in that moment to make that most empowering choice, which is, okay, let me safely focus on my body. Let me ground my attention. Let me feel my heels on the ground. Let me feel my back on the chair. Let me pay attention to how my, I'm breathing in this moment. And now I'm consciously present in my body. And of mm. course, we want to practice that over and over and over again so that we can really begin to not only reconnect with our body, but over time, the safer we feel paying attention to it, the more than conscious will become of all of those underlying sensations. Oh, I love that. That's so tactical, which is beautiful. As you were talking, I was like, how much of our senses have been conditioned? So like the hearing, right? When you hear someone shout, it triggers you yes. because of childhood. The tri like when, as you were talking, so even with where you're, you're, you know, doing your senses, you're touching the sofa, you're smelling the air, right? I know like being, becoming aware it has a lot to do with what are you seeing? What are you smelling? What are you touching? What are you feeling? Mm -hmm. And as you were talking, I was like, oh, but what if we've been conditioned for that to be actually a negative thing? Like how do we start to attend, uh, shine attention on the fact that we were conditioned to think of a smell in a certain way. Yes, 100%. And, and the, the reality of it is our, our memory in general, and especially when we're talking about trauma memory, it's not language-based. Right. It is sensory-based. Yes. And I'm sure many listeners probably have even had that experience of walking by and right smelling that cologne or that waft of aroma from that person in your past who hurt you, and now you might as well be back oh. in interaction with that person, my heart is racing, I feel nervous. Of course, I'm using a much more stressful no, course, past yeah. experience, but you're, you're absolutely right, Lisa, in terms of we have these imprints that are often sensory-based, and then we carry that with us so much so that any similar smell, mm -hmm. sound, taste, sensation of any so sort actually brings us back in time, yeah. right? And then we live the visceral likely dysregulation, reactivity, attempt to keep ourselves safe as if we are that younger year person, whatever it was. And so to speak to your point, understanding that we have, and this is, I think, why trauma in and of itself and any of our emotional memories really are difficult for a lot of us to put into words. Um, not only do they happen at a time when some of us are actually pre-verbal, like before we even mm. have the capability to express language, but very much like I was describing kind of the way our senses are stored in our brain, the way our emotional memories are where, I should say, our emotional memories are stored in our brain. Of course, there's not one area. Many areas of our brain light up at one point for one functioning, but none of them are language-based. They're all sensory. So 
again, knowing in those moments, exploring for ourselves, you know, what are sensations that might activate, trigger, whatever word you like to use, but bring up that deeper stuff, transporting us back in time. Of course, gifting us then not only compassion, I can understand maybe why walking past that perfume counter really caused that visceral reaction in me, but now I can open the opportunity for some more of that somatic work because Mm -hmm. now I know that my body, my emotional brain is activated and I, I know I'm feeling unsafe as a result and now I can make some choices to create some safety in my now moment. Because, yeah, I love that because I was just thinking about, you know, when you get with somebody, if you've had a bad experience, especially in a relationship, these other sensories can start to wear their ugly heads, if you will, with a new partner if... Like the cologne's such a beautiful one, actually, because there's, I think, isn't it like the sensory in the nose? There's no filter. It goes mm-hmm. straight to the brain. So mm-hmm. that's the one that you can't even logistically mm-hmm. like try and convince right. yourself mm-hmm. otherwise. Yeah. Our, our, our sm- sense of smell is really connected to the emotional memory sensation and it really kind of it bypasses a gate, mm-hmm. a sensory mm-hmm. gate, too. So in terms of the imprint, I think most of us will feel that one strongly, but I'll make even a bigger global statement here. Even outside of our senses, the reality of it is most of us are cycling in past memories in our way of being, in our relationships, similar experiences, whether or not it's, oh, that smell that's activating this, you know, really traumatic incident. A lot of us are operating in our relationships in general Mm. based on our past relationship, Mm. projecting, you know, our parent figures in so many ways onto our current partners and not necessarily seeing the objective reality of the differences in them. Oh my God. Is that trauma bond? That is trauma. So if you can take us actually from the the trauma that happens as a kid, how that ends up being a trauma bond as adults, because it's such a awakening, I think, to the decisions we make, the choices we make, and then why we make them. Yeah. So we'll start by a trauma bond. Um, very generally, at least the definition that I like to offer for a trauma bond is our very habitual, patterned way of relating in our relationships or to other people. And with the idea being that much of it is conditioned or again, that same dynamic pattern, the same way I had to show up for mom, dad, or whomever was my core caregiver in childhood, usually then becomes that same role that I adopt in into my adulthood. And what if we didn't have, you know, a safe, grounded caregiver with their own sense of self or separation, different needs, you know, able to then ground themselves through their emotions, allowing them to be present to us as a separate individual, being curious, helping us meet consistently the needs that we have in childhood, which were dependent on them to meet for us. So that's a really, really tall order. I pretty much just described what I like to call a unicorn because I've yet to find, you know, a, a human who's really had that level of caregiving because it's, it's very difficult. So many of us are raised, you know, in families that are transmitting intergenerational patterns or just simply ways of being. So much of it is influenced by ideas of parenting. I mean, there was up until recently a brand of parenting that would profess that children are literally to be seen, not heard. They don't have emotional needs. Literally just keep them alive like a plant in the corner. <laughs> And that's, that's all that's necessary. I mean, this was a brand of parenting oh, yeah. that, you know, that era. right, that, uh, you know, advisors, doctors would have said, yes, that's exactly how we treat children. Mm. And obviously now we know different. So I'm not minimizing or, or shaming parents mm. by any stretch of the imagination. I'm actually, what I believe is offering the very human reasons why very few of us had that caregiving. So what mm. happens is because we're dependent, we need these people to literally 
keep us physically alive at minimum. If they don't even want to acknowledge emotional need, our body needs someone to keep us alive. We're so attuned and adaptive that we will keep that connection at whatever cost to ourselves, meaning we will always show up in service of that relationship with that parent to get whatever little bit of love they can give us, even if that means squashing certain aspects of ourselves. And because very few of us had parents who were emotionally mature or able to tend to themselves, their emotions, and create that separation, so many of us grew up as an extension of our parents, Ooh. right? Of uh, a need that indirectly us showing up by maybe suppressing our emotions, maybe being the kid with no problems, never causing an issue, or, or maybe being the caretaker for our parent. Habitually over time, we do that enough. We actually think that that's how we connect to other people. That's how we once kept ourselves safe. Mm -hmm. We define that as love, as a relationship. And before we know it, we continue on and seek that same pattern with our partners until, of course, we become, we become conscious. And we see, again, the role we're playing, how we're relating to others, what needs we're bringing to the table, what needs we're not bringing to the table, and, of course, make some changes. But simply... Trauma bonds come from our childhood experiences, our childhood circumstances where our only, our best solution for most of us was to adapt in some way, to meet a need, to play a role, to squash ourselves in some way to maintain that connection because that's familiar, because that's how we need it to stay safe. Mm -hmm. We continue to repeat that even though at our core we feel disconnected, unfulfilled, and unsatisfied ultimately. God, that. It's heartbreaking, but thank you for breaking that down so eloquently. And um, I believe you also talk about emotional need entanglement. Um, talk to me about that and how that really does show up in people's lives with everything that we're talking about, about the, the thing that you take from younger childhood so that people right now can really start to understand themselves. And that's what I freaking love about your book is you're really trying to help people just like understand who you are, why you do the things you do, the habits, and then how we can work through them is so freaking beautiful. Um, so yeah, if you can talk to me about that. Yeah, emotional need entanglement. I mean, very much like the, the name says, it's when the emotional needs often of, of two people, it could be a whole system, get mer merged together. Now, of course, when we're in relationship with someone, it's, it's a space to honor needs, to go for support. But ultimately, there needs to be a, a point of separation, of distinction between I'm me, a separate, unique individual, and you, Lisa, are you, a separate, unique individual. And many of us who grew up in families who didn't have that separation or who are enmeshed is another word or codependent, we lacked that. What, what begins to happen is needs are met or entangled through another human, right? So by showing up, by keeping, say, you know, mom or dad or whomever it was in your family, you know, as happy as possible, as grounded as possible, as peaceful as possible, oftentimes by squashing our emotions in a certain moment, we become entangled. So my servicing you and your needs actually does have the byproduct of meeting my need, but it's through you in a sense so we've entangled ourselves. we haven't created that distinction and the reality of our emotions is that they are very individual mm. experiences while they feel like they come from the outside world and of course they are activated in our relationships we do need that separation how much of that happens in because the, the, this may come as a shock of a question but the reason why i'm asking is because my audience asks me a lot about narcissistic mothers 
I get asked a lot now about narcissistic mothers and to really talk about that. So when you talk about this emotional needed entanglement, as you were like, I was just thinking about this, you know, that young child that has a narcissistic mother that grows up always trying to serve that need with the mother. How on earth do you start to identify, break it and separate yourself from it? Because especially when it comes to like a mother, they... You hope that they're always in your lives. But when it's a narcissistic mother, there can become this tricky part of in order to distance yourself, um, doesn't that then trigger the mother? Yes. And so a simple way, you know, what I really view narcissism as is is a, a function or a byproduct of survival mode. And we all become eye focused when we are fighting mm. for our proverbial or, you know, survival and a narcissistic parent of any kind, whether it's a mother or a father, feels so unsafe, insecure, likely, again, because of their environments that they grew up in, lacking a sense of self, literally becomes survival focus. So it's not often of an ill intent that I think a lot of mm. narcissistic or people with that label, um, you know, get kind of painted as in my opinion, it's actually a survival mode that, again, I'm going to go maybe say something a bit controversial here that we can all slip into and do when we're in that unsafe reactive state. And I'll speak for myself. When I'm screaming and yelling at someone that I absolutely love, you better believe I'm only focused on myself, at creating safety for myself. I've actually dehumanized. I don't even see my partner, whoever I'm yelling at, as a person in that moment. And that's just a, a little example of slipping in and out. And of course, I think that those of us that are deeming our parents as like the narcissistic parent likely are always self-focused, which does mean that the emotional climate, you know, revolves around this, this human, the needs of the home, kind of everyone is servicing, making sure that that other person's needs are getting met. And usually, again, it's at the, at the consequence of, of ourself, of what we want. But I really do view narcissism as a, as a self-focused survival-based mm -hmm. mechanism where that person is only trying to literally maintain their survival, often even at the expense of their children. And the byproduct of that for being the child of that often is we look outward and we might then continue to right, service, mm -hmm. caretake, meet the needs of everyone around us. Because at one time we had to do that to keep ourselves safe, to keep the explosions at mm -hmm. a minimum. And then we keep repeating that. And oftentimes we're left with no idea. And this is, again, who I would imagine would be really helped by the workbook, who we are, what we need. We've lost ourselves in the service of mm. someone else. And that's what you suggest in going inwards, doing the internal work so that you can actually start to identify what are the needs that you have and then start serving yourself, like you said. Um, because that was the thing that I was thinking through as you were talking. It's like so much, and I get it. Like I'm always, I'm very honest with my parents, right? And I'm just like, I really want you to be proud of me. Like I, that's the thing. Like before you die, I want you to hear you say that you're proud of me because that is the thing that I just strive for. It makes me feel good about myself. Now, my parents have said that many times, but when I think about if you have a parent that may have some narcissistic traits. I know that a lot of people would be like, we just pigeonhole everyone now as a narcissist. <laughs> so I actually understand that not everyone's a narcissist. If you have traits, if you will. Um, you, I'm just going to, again, presume that people are like me that want to have their parents proud of them or want them to be, you know, happy. When you have a parent like what you just said, where it's like they're doing the best they can sometimes, they're just in like that, that scarcity, that, that fearful mode. Mm. How do you start to disconnect that? Like, because you so, 
Like, do you have to actually give up the notion that your parents are ever going to be proud of you, that they're ever going to be satisfied, they're ever going to give you the pat on the back, and now you just have to do the internal work? Like, do you have to actually completely disconnect from that? I think it's natural. I think most of us, you know, we want pride from our loved ones. We want to know or have the idea that we matter at minimum, right, to these to these loved ones. So I think it's it's really natural to have, especially when it's our parents that we're talking about, to to have that inner desire. So we can hold space, you know, for that wanting that we have and also maybe hold space for the reality because now the very difficult, honest conversation around what power we have to change another applies, which is very limited, mm-hmm. right? So we can wish our parents who offer us those validation or those moments of pride or even moments of connection or even just seeing us because I think that's often what happens. We don't feel seen for who we are, especially when we have a narcissistic parent that actually can't shift out of their own focus to see you know, us for themselves ultimately. And so holding space for then the reality and knowing that we might not get that validation Mm -hmm. from someone and then giving ourselves perhaps the opportunity to give it to ourselves and a prime example and while it's a bit different than validation i i love having the idea or having the feeling that i'm considered all of this comes back to childhood where i felt very limited moments of being considered unless i was performing you know i and having that moment of like having someone, you know, see me, do something, acknowledge me is something that I deeply, deeply want. Mm. I now know my pattern enough and know that when that desire is really active for me, it's an invitation, of course, maybe to outwardly ask for my need directly to be met for that active consideration of validation from a partner, a loved one, a parent, whoever it is. And in the occasion where that human can't or won't, provide that for me for whatever multitude of reasons why someone might not be able to or choose to show up for me in that moment, I now have the opportunity to know that that's a marker that I can, an invitation for me Mm. to provide that to myself. Because again, going back to the normal humanness of these needs, I think a lot of us are like, well, just squash it down. I shouldn't need validation for me. I shouldn't need to be considered. In reality, I've learned that when I'm feeling that actively, I do actually need to be considered. It just might not come or that person that I want it from might not be available, but I'm available. So I use that now as a moment or an opportunity for me to ask myself, well, okay, Nicole, if you're so desperate for consideration, is it possible that you're feeling Mm. like last on your priority list? Are you not maybe showing up for yourself? Yes, ideally, maybe you want your loved one, your parent, whoever it is, to offer you that validation, that consideration. And if they're not available, can I gift myself with that? So I'm always thinking, how do you set yourself up for success? Because in those moments, sometimes you get emotional, right? Where it's like, it's hard to go from, oh, hey, baby, and then they dismiss you to you go, okay, well, I'm just going to go fit in myself. Like in that moment, you just feel freaking dismissed. And so how do you go to then, all right, right now I'm feeling dismissed, right? Like in real time, how do you process that? And do you have like a cheat sheet or something that you can go to? It's like, I feel dismissed. Crap, what am I going to do? Go for a walk. Got it. (laughs) I'm laughing because in reality, my moments of aha realization usually occur after I've thrown a temper tantrum. I've asked someone to come hug me, but held my arm up, my daggers out and don't let them near me. And so 
moments of clarity for me still aren't in real time, yeah. but giving ourselves the space, the awareness to dive deeper can be the beginning of the journey. Um, I so. love that you said that because that is so important. I really need people to really freaking hear that because here you are, you've done the work, right? You've written amazing books. You've, you know, you live your life in this space. And yet even you saying, mm-hmm. look, it's still freaking hard. I have to do it after. It's so aligning. I really hope people hear that. Guys, guys, honestly, hear the words that came out of my mouth. Don't seek perfection. Hear that you can learn it. Hear that you can evolve. Yeah. I am so sorry. Mm-hmm. I just had to say that. Thank you for being that honest. Yeah, I mean, and that's the reality, especially when we're talking about these core reactive spaces. Mm. Those will be the last to change. It's a gift to give yourself that post-play where you're able to <laughs> dive in, right? Because that's where it will begin. You know, ideally, we learn to be more conscious and to make those different choices in real time. Mm-hmm. Though, again, the reality of it is this is, wired into our neurobiology quite literally my body is already beginning to activate me and i'm already interpreting and all my systems and juices are off to the races before (laughs) i even catch on to oh my gosh and again that speaks to the point of the more consistently conscious we are the more we can make different choices before we lose that control so for me it even includes like day to day, right? When I go through periods like this, especially I'm promoting this workbook. So I'm, you know, I'm traveling, I'm not sleeping as well. That means that my resources are generally lower. It's going to make it harder in those moments then to catch myself. When I'm firing on all cylinders, I'm, you know, taking care of my body. I'm getting the sleep I need. I'm getting the movement I need. I'm getting the nutrients I need. I'm breathing calmly and deeply all the time. Then those are the moments where I might be more likely in real time to notice as my stress gets amplified because that's usually what we're noticing first. Notice as my heart rate and I start to tense as I'm starting to create, you know, and send myself down that old path and then make a new choice then. We try, we attempt to notice when we're already so knee deep, locked and loaded and emotionally reactive that we're, we're not setting ourselves up to succeed or we're not doing anything to care for our body outside of those moments and then expecting, you know, some breath work to work <laughs> or this conversation to come to top of mind the next time you're getting ready to scream and you to remember to do what Dr. Nicole said. And that's just so unrealistic that we need to set ourselves up to succeed consistently, which means creating that consistent relationship where I can notice I'm depleted. I'm stressed out. So when I now go home and return to my partners, right, after a trip like this, I might not have that bandwidth. I might need to go and take care of myself and ground myself and get some rest, or I might find myself reactive in those moments. Oh my God, this is so good. Like the reason why this is so like amazing, what you're saying is it's this predictability. It's know thyself, don't judge thyself, (laughs) right? So it's like, oh, I know myself well enough to know that when I travel, I'm going to get less sleep. When I get less sleep, I'm more irritable. When I'm more irritable, something's going to trigger me quicker, right? And just now, when you're about to book a trip, then you know you're going to be like, oh, like being aware of Mm -hmm. I'm going to be more susceptible now to being triggered. I'm going to be more susceptible now to feeling a certain way, to feeling dismissed. And so at least... Almost just warning yourself is a beautiful thing to do. And I love that so much. And I also like liken this to like knowing our cycles, knowing our hormones, mm-hmm. right? Because exactly what you're saying, if we can lose our shit because we're hangry, right? Because we're just like, we're, 
We're so hungry that we get angry. Now think about what, how we show up. If our hormones, if it's the beginning of our cycle versus the end of our cycle. If we've had the stacking effect of not eating, not sleeping, traveling, maybe having a bad experience, something's failed, and now imagine someone comes to you and even remotely like skates around your triggers. You're going to be way more likely to have that eruption. Right, and and the reality, and again, why the workbook even begins with those those body type、mm. habits is, so few of us are are caring for our body for many for many different reasons. We don't even think we need to, or that's part of this conversation around emotions. Before we、mm. even go into the you know part two around the whole emotional world, it's again understanding that we do we do have a body, and that is very much something that we need to care for. And I'm speaking for myself who. Sleep was never a priority. I was eating inflammatory foods all of the time, you know, for me, and so my whole resting、mm-hmm. state was a state of depletion. So everything I was doing, going about my day, I was living in that cycle of reactivity. I actually had no chance to be calm, to be grounded, to make new choices, to be in alignment, because none of my resources were ever met, unbeknownst to me, because half of this information I didn't even know that it was important to, you know, take care of my body. I didn't realize the. Role that our gut plays. I didn't realize the role that our nervous system plays, which is again why, with my first book, I was so passionate about getting that information、mm. out there, so that we we can know, and then we can start to not only make those choices to set ourselves up to succeed, but to give ourselves the grace、mm-hmm. in those moments because some things are outside. When the you know when we're going through moon cycles, when we're going through our cycles, right? I notice very much shifts and changes along with that too, in terms of my sleep and my. Overall stress-based resources, and that will then lead to more moments of reactivity.、Mm-hmm. Where do body beliefs lie in everything that we're talking about now? About getting yourself grounded. Yeah. So the, what we think about our body is so much as well grounded in the experiences that we had. How were bodies modeled in our homes? Right. Were bodies a, a comfortable part of day-to-day existence? Did we see caregivers who? Tended and cared for their body.、Mm-hmm. Did we see maybe the quite opposite? Bodies weren't even talked about. I know for me, there was never nudity in my home. There was never conversation around body or, or changes like in the human development.、Mm-hmm. None of that was discussed with me. It was as if we were all walking around afraid of a body becoming ill. That was very present, but we never actually talked about tending to a body. So how we care for our body is going to impact what we think of it. Also, how we hear other people talking about our body, about their bodies. They might give us the best advice to care for our body, but maybe we have a caregiver who's so shaming of their own body, always on a diet, always self-critical, always trying to modify it in some way. They might be praising our body, but again, we're going to be impacted by the shame that we see reflected in how they're caring. For their body, so what we think about our body、um, is very much grounded often in the experiences that we had around bodies in general, our body in general, and then it goes to inform how we care for our body growing up. If I've learned, it's not surprising that, like I just shared with you, I didn't care for my body at all. I I wasn't taught to. I was taught that a body only gets sick. I wasn't taught how to care for wellness in a body. So it's not surprising that I was entering my thirties and. I had very limited care for my body. I had a lot of shame around my body. Again, not seeing a body being honored, being appreciated, seeing very much criticism around dieting. I saw my mom and my sister diet. I saw very negative comments. My mom made comments to me when she would see my weight fluctuating. 
So not only was I disconnected from my body, I didn't think very favorable about it at all. I'm actually quite shameful. And all this came from how I saw bodies related, tended to, and how I experienced my own body in relationship with those around me. Wow. How old were you when your mom did that? My entire life. My my mom very much based in her own, you know, conditioning. I'm sure what she saw from her mother was always, always commenting. Interestingly enough, it was very confusing because while she would so quickly, you know, assess when I've, you know, gained weight or whatever it might be and comment on that, she would just as quickly then too comment on not taking seconds at dinner because she very much learned one of the main ways my mom connected in absence of connecting emotionally with us or children was by providing, always having the dinner on the table, providing food, baking my favorite cupcakes. So very confusing. And I think this really illustrates some of the messaging we get, right? Watch your body, but eat to love me at the same time. And then all of this got mixed up, confused in terms of, I still see moments, not only where I'm shameful of my body, but where I reward my body, myself, my achievements with food, very much like my mom, or I tried to connect with other people around, of course, culturally, I think that's a different conversation in terms of connecting. But in my family, it was the only point of connection. Wow. Um, And how did that impact your self-esteem? Oh my gosh. I mean, our, again, our bodies, if, even if we're minimizing and distracting ourselves from the fact that we have them, I mean, they're, they're part of ourselves, right? They're our reflection outward. We adorn them with clothes, right? So how we feel in our skin very much does translate to how we feel about our self, mm. at least our physical self in general. Sometimes it washes over our entire self. So while I very much felt good when I was performing and achieving, you know, at my core, there's a a lot of shame, a lot of feelings of unworthiness. And a lot of it did factor in, in terms of how I felt about the vessel that Mm. I'm living in with. I mean, I avoid it. Something I'll share really quickly because it has to do with the body. Um, Growing up, I was in all different types of activities, athletics, artistic pursuits, dance here, there, everywhere. And I have a specific memory because all I wanted to do was dance as a kid. I was really interested in dancing. I wanted to be a jazz dancer in oh particular. Oh, my God. Did you really? Yes. I had no idea. So to a take jazz to, dance. To jazz dancer. <laughs> I think probably it would have morphed into hip hop because now I'm there like, it I feel is. that. Oh, my girl. <laughs> at, my, at, my, at the neighborhood dance studio, it was jazz, tap, and ballet offered. Long story short, to get into jazz, you had to take two years of ballet, which was not of interest to me. And I was a little girl in the back of the ballet class playing softball at the same time, very much achieving at softball. And I have a memory. You have to wear or we wore little leotards. And I had I had a bit of a belly. Um, I now understand that as being a lot of times when we have a lot of cortisol from stress, uh-huh. um, it can show up in particularly belly weight. But of course, when I was looking at all the other little girls around me, they were all very tiny in their little leotards. And here I was with this belly. And if I'm being perfectly honest, I probably wasn't the best at dance. I was always kind of tucked into the back. And before long, I, I started to really dislike going to dance so much so that I would complain. Um, and I ended up quitting dance. I stopped going to dance, I think two years in, even though I think in terms of interest and, you know, I think it really was something I probably would have pursued, but I think the self-consciousness of seeing and being in a body that not only didn't compare favorably, I was so uncomfortable in my own skin because of all of the overwhelming stressful feelings that I didn't have support intending to I quit dance in favor of, being in a softball body where I was able to achieve, I felt better. 
I got better validation. So interestingly, I think for me, it, it had a bit of an impact even of shifting me out of possibly pursuing mm. hobbies, passions, things that were of interest to me. And of course, now I'm getting back in my body and dancing around. So that for me is huge. That's so cool. I love that story mm -hmm. so much. Um, and the reason why I really love it is because everything we're talking about, it's like instead of like, stop beating ourselves up over where we are right now. Like we are an accumulation of things that have happened in our past. We can't change it. I wish we could, we can't. Until we figure out a DeLorean that we can go back in time, like, you know, Marty <laughs> yeah, McFly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so instead of beating ourselves up over it, how can we take that as information for us to then be able to hopefully today getting your book, changing, you know, really digging into who we are so that we can then show up to have the life we want. And you to sit here to say, Look, this all stemmed from the fact that I think I was self-conscious in a leotard. I realized that why I made those decisions. But today, that doesn't sit well with me. And today, I've seen why. And I can change it. And I'm going to go do that dance class. Girl, I hope people freaking hear that. That is so amazing. Um, and then as you were talking, also, I thought once upon a time, I would have been like, oh, it's our ego, right? Like mm -hmm. our ego doesn't want to be bruised. But what I freaking love in your book, and literally it stopped me in my tracks. I was like, I'm going to put that on a post-it note now. Not to villainize our ego. And dude, I'm do I do that all the time. It's like, ah, that bitch. You know, like <laughs> I call my ego my bitch. Um, but I love that you actually said, don't villainize it. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about why we do villainize it and then how we can actually turn it into um, a different message so that we can accept ourselves. Yeah, so I think clarity a bit on, on ego, what it is, because I think traditionally, or a lot of us, when we hear ego, we think of that kind of narcissistic, mm -hmm. right? Self-focused, mm -hmm. I'm better than thou, you know, voice or, or way of being. And really an ego, really simply, as I often simplify things is, the story of us, like who we believe our identity to be, which again, as I'm sure you're not going to be surprised here, is grounded in how we've experienced ourselves mm. and the meanings that we've made of our life and our experiences thus far. And again, grounded in our very real lived experience, we all are making meaning all of the time. If we drop in and pay attention to all the swirling thoughts in our, in our mind, we're always trying to make sense of what's happening around us. And when we're younger, in that very early developmental state of dependency, something else that contributes right to this beginnings of our ego is the fact that we are developmentally immature so much that we can't understand all of the nuances and multidimensionality mm -hmm. and factors that contribute to anyone's decision. So when things happen in our home, to us, in our relationships, the only way that our developmentally immature mind can make sense of it is egoic or I-based. I must have been the reason that mom left, dad left, mm. that this person's not available to meet my needs, that I was abused. I must be bad, unworthy, wrong. There must be something to do with me. It gives us a bit of control. And again, it's we don't have the ability to zoom out. We don't have the maturity to be in a relationship and know all of the different factors that contribute to why we do things. Sometimes we don't even know what we do. We can only assume it's us. Dude, you just, sorry to interrupt you. Holy smoke. That is like a massive aha moment. Yeah, what's we going don't on? Have, I said... This is so powerful. <laughs> oh my God. So like, 
Okay, so if I understand it, you're saying, hey, look, as kids, we just need meaning. Otherwise, it's just utter discomfort. We need to be grounded. So in, as a kid, you can't put all these things into mm-hmm. place. So it's actually a defense mechanism for us to say it's us. That us, that ero, which comes from the Greek word me, yeah. I, uh-huh. right? So it's the ego, ero. It just gives me an answer to, found, to find some grounding so that I don't feel dysregulated. But it's in that that we've now identified it's us that then leads into our adulthood that makes it think it's about us. Yeah, gives us control too, right? Because yeah, yeah, if yeah. I can just not be bad in yeah. that way, maybe dad will come back. Maybe mom will stay. Maybe I won't get yelled at, screamed at, abused. Right? It gives us that semblance, too, of understanding, wow. meaning, and control. It gives us something to do about it. Right? And then I, now mm-hmm. I can adapt. Mm-hmm. Now I can change myself. Right. Now oh. I can just show, right? For me, seeing a very stressed out household, there was, there was only so much that the Leperers could take. So I, I felt that. Mm-hmm. I felt the complete overwhelm all the time. So I started to share less and less about me out of concern that it would stress the system Ooh. because that was the experience that I had, right? So I squash part of me. I assume that I'm, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back every time. So if I just limit, and then I became described in my family as shy, Nicole, secretive, Nicole. Nicole never tells us anything. Nothing ever bothers Nicole. All of that was so far from the truth. But if I feel like I'm causing or contributing at least to this overwhelm that's completely destabilizing me, I can just stop causing it. I can just bring less of me to that table. So back to ego, what then happens over time, because we love to be right, because we also then have a part of our brain that colludes with this whole process called the reticular activating system that to deal with the seemingly endless amount of stimuli that we just can't physically take in as a human being, we are always filtering and determining what is of personal relevance. And what's of personal relevance are our deep-rooted beliefs, who we think we are. We love to be right and confirm those. So before we know it, outside of our awareness, we delete everything from our existence that challenges our identity. We continue to operate based on this story of who we think we are. Right? So I'm nothing bothers Nicole you know, not surprising to hear that I became perfect partner, Cole. Mm. Never brought an issue. Never asked for support in my relationships. I led with that same egoic way of being. And I felt challenged, right, anytime I tried to operate or share anything out of that. So simply, an ego is a story of us, very much grounded in our lived experiences, often adaptations, how we think we've had to make or how we've had to make sense of our life without all of the developmental awareness that then gets repeated and filtered that we get so locked and loaded and sure of who we are into adulthood that let's bring this full circle. We can become really reactive and defensive if we hear something outside of what we know to be true. Dude, that's, that is the <laughs> most powerful way I've ever heard ego expressed. That's amazing. It's all just fit into place. Like every block, as you were saying, I was like, oh my God, it's making a beautiful picture now. And it's, it actually makes me think very differently about the ego about why we focus on our ego why it has a villainous thing right. to it and actually it's been our protector right yes that's it, it's been trying so hard to serve us to keep us in that familiar to keep us knowing ourselves in the way that we become comfortable and anything outside of that any perspective that doesn't match this is again where we can get mm-hmm. heated arguments with loved ones even very well-meaning ones who point out the shadow sides of us, the things that are 
harder for us to see, right? And or when we hear people who express beliefs outside of our own beliefs, mm -hmm. we can become really reactive and squash because it the reason being, again, going back to this, what feels like disproportionate reactions in those moments actually aren't disproportionate. Right. There are safety making mechanism. We feel challenged, threatened when we're having a new experience or hearing something new about ourselves. And if I've only come to identify but with that very egoic story or who I think I am, now I'm going to be really challenged anytime I hear those alternate mm. perspectives. And I'm not going to want to let this new information in because then I've become unfamiliar to even myself. Now you're challenging everything that I think of. And that challenge now becomes extremely uncomfortable. Yes. Now, I, I, I have no option but to take it personally because what I mm. feel is happening is a very personal attack. But we have to understand. So not to villainize, it means observing it, mm. seeing these stories, seeing how we're coloring our experiences with possibly this reactivity and expanding the space to acknowledge all of the rest of us, mm. everything that maybe didn't have space or safety in our childhood to express, everything that maybe I've shut down about myself to at one point keep myself connected and safe, that's still part of us. So the goal of ego work in general is to acknowledge that I've yet to meet a human who doesn't have an ego, who's not doing some of this subconscious filtering and biasing and reacting when it's kind of outside of our familiar bounds of self to acknowledge that maybe in those moments we are feeling a bit threatened and then over time being able to expand and allowing in the rest of our being that probably has been just pushed below the surface. Mm, I love that. And you also say like, uh, like name your ego, Jessica. That's right. <laughs> I think it can be really, really helpful. Um, and that's like a silly way to play with it. But to create that separation, right? If I can, the ego isn't me. It's a part of my story. It's been a very validated part of my story that, again, has kept me safely protected as the overachiever without needs because that's who I had to be. So thank you, Jessica, for your service. And I think sometimes acknowledging when that voice is active by calling it Jessica's voice can be the beginning of that separation. Jessica is part of my story, has played a protective role mm -hmm. in my story, but Jessica isn't who Nicole is. Mm -hmm. There's much more to Nicole. So I invite anyone listening to not only observe their ego, anytime we think I, you know, anytime we're having thoughts that are very much kind of about me, who I think I am, what my place is in the world, pay attention to how repetitive and habitual those stories are that might be the voice of that ego. And if you would like to give your ego a name, again, I think that can help create that separation, maybe even add a bit of humor, which I think helps on all of our journeys. Yeah. When the ego comes alive, you can acknowledge, oh, Jessica, you know. <laughs> That's what I really like about it. And obviously, you know, people have talked about like alter egos, but I've never really thought about it in this realm as a way to help yourself get over triggers, get over emotional issues, get over trauma. Like I've never really thought of, I've always thought of like, you know, alter ego, like Sasha Fierce. Yes, yes, right? yes, yes. It's like, and it's like me with my hair. It's like, yes. I don't always have my hair like this, but it's my way of showing up. But I've never thought of ego as being like that. Like when you have something that maybe stings or maybe it shows up to just say, oh, it's, it's Jessica. You know, like having that kind of like your mate where it's like, oh, it's her. But it doesn't mean that it's me. Because I think when we think of it as being this is who I am, yes. it can like um, really like create knots. I mean, explain to me actually what that's doing to us. Yeah. I think what you're describing yeah. is, is that constriction is mm -hmm. limitation. Right? It's kind of shrinking in. I mean, when we've defined who we are, we don't really give us any other option to have any other experience mm -hmm. of ourselves. I think egos, identities, it, to some extent, largely can can be limiting if we make that 
our whole story. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, and I think it's a tough reality for most of us living this human experience, is that we're, we are multidimensional. Mm-hmm. There isn't just one way to kind of summarize or put in a bucket or put a hat on what I am even, right? There's so much of what I am. And I can even make a case that there's an evolution of what I am in and of myself. So when we embrace that multidimensionality, I think then we allow ourselves that space. But so few of us do that. We become constricted. We kind of even feel ourselves tense inside. Mm. Um, And I could even go as far to say that some of us inhabit then the role of, and this is where we can talk about and Actually, the next book that I'm working on on relationships is going to talk a lot about what I call conditioned selves, Mm -hmm. when this idea of ego actually morphs into this whole embodied function role I play, where I become, right, the caretaker in a relationship, where my whole sense of self is based on this idea of that's all I am. Mm -hmm. I'm a person who provides care. My neurobiology shifts, and that's, I embody that actual self. So I can make a statement that ego, right, becomes the cloud that some of us can become the weather of. And we don't then. We limit ourselves that we can't even imagine stepping outside of our roles, let alone our stories. Wow, girl, that's so strong. You mentioned that I didn't want to interrupt you, our shadow selves. So how in everything that we're talking about, can we identify what our shadow selves are? If you actually don't mind explaining what that is, um, yeah, it's not there. Yes. So our shadow is all of the repressed, which means kept out of our awareness, aspects of ourselves. So if in childhood, again, we didn't have the space to be sad, be angry, maybe just self-express our creativity or just be who we are, the more consistently we got a message, direct or indirect, not to do that, mm. that those things don't go away. Emotions don't go away. That aspect of ourself doesn't go away. It might go out of our conscious awareness. And then we call that it's repressed in our shadow if you will think Mm. of like the shadow that's cast we can't see it necessarily where we do experience our shadow often is sometimes when we have this is very interesting it's funny that i brought that dance story i imagine this is why i didn't know you were going to go to shadow but what i would notice when good old instagram came to be the dancing app as it was began imagine where I'm going here, scrolling Instagram, seeing people dance freely, that constriction you just Mm. felt, I would almost seethe inside. I would feel my body clench and I might even think some negative critical things about the dancer. Not, Mm. oh wow, look at this beautiful dancer in full self-expression. How nice. What a thing that my little self would have wanted. So repressed all of that, that what I saw in that freedom of self-expression, that ease in the body that at least communicates to me when I see someone dancing, all of that aspect of myself was so pushed outside of my awareness. The desire to be free and at ease in my body was projected, is what we call it, and came out as irritation, Mm. negative reaction at something I see in someone else. Understanding that the shadow of it, right, was in me. Mm. I didn't see it in myself. The ability to be easeful, free, connected to one's body I saw it in that person and I had a negative reaction. So that's a lot of times where we can see our shadow reflect it when we are turned off by certain aspects of another person is a really great place to wonder within, um, seeing if there's an aspect of ourself. Um, because I can make a case that we all have aspects of everyone right. inside of us. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, there's certain times where we're all a little bit of something mm-hmm. in different moments. So when we have, though, those big visceral reactions can be an indicator. And it 
isn't always negative things that we're repressing, oh. right? Some of us might have learned to repress even our ability to shine, talents that we've mm. had. If there wasn't space or if that wasn't rewarded, maybe in the traditional sense, our parents didn't think that that was going to get us the good paying job that they wanted. It could be some of our natural gifts and talents that we've squashed below the surface. Again, all because of the messaging that we got. Doesn't mean it's not in us. Oftentimes it's activated when we see it in someone else and usually it's unfavorable how mm. we're feeling because when it really comes down to it, we don't like that part of ourselves. Oh, and so do you think that we should start, I mean, yes, you have a workbook, so I'm sure your answer is going to be yes, but like starting to take inventory because as you were talking, it's like, how do you actually start to identify your shadow self? Obviously you said, you know, when you're starting to get that uncomfortable, maybe that negative, like that could be a sign. Is that where people should start? Like if someone's just starting right now and they're like, oh, I... I don't recognize that I'm showing up like that. I actually do believe I really hate this dance and I really hate that, sh you know, the shoes that that woman's wearing or whatever. But a lot of the time there's that deep rooted thing, right? Yeah. So um, what would you suggest? Yeah, would it be inventory then backtracking? What would that look like? Yeah, paying attention. I think anytime, I'm going to answer this really globally, anytime we're having a feeling, we can get really curious and mm. begin to explore what's causing it. So whether it's the negative reaction to the Instagram post that you're seeing, the negative reaction to the comment that your partner made, right? Feelings are, are, are meant to provide us information. Mm -hmm. If we can learn, right, how to in a grounded way, see them, allow them in, I should say first, and allow them to not dysregulate us so that they can be part of our experience, but not color our experience. And overwhelm us and send us back into that cycle of reactivity but when we can you know negotiate life with emotions then i think any time we have an emotion that's activated especially a big one can give us an opportunity mm. to then explore and then getting really honest okay well what is it what am i reacting to what is it about those shoes what is my mind telling myself about the person who wears those shoes maybe oh well that's a person who would x y or z and oh that's something that i don't want to be oh okay well can I see any moments where I am X, Y, or Z or where I too act on X, Y, or Z, right? That's just a little bit of a mm -hmm. quick way of doing that backtracking. But start with any feelings. Feelings are information. The more consistently we have feelings, the bigger the feelings are, we can explore. Again, what is the meaning I'm making? What is my mind telling me about the person who's wearing or doing this mm -hmm. thing? And if I'm really honest, can I locate a place in time where I see that in me? And can I work to allow that to be okay? That is so beautiful. And you said this earlier, but I want to repeat it because it feel, fits so perfectly here as well, is that once you start to understand everything you're saying, once you start to practice it yourself, you can now actually see it in other people and I think have more understanding. So when someone is coming to you having this, you know, heightened reaction, if you've already done the work and you're like, oh, this may be their shadow self, what am I doing? Like I try to be as empathetic as I possibly can. And look, we're on social, so we probably open ourselves up a lot more to <laughs> than other people. But when you get pushback, hate, um, negative comments, whether it's on social or even within your own family, I try to then put on my empathetic hat. And now you're giving me words to be able to use because I normally say, oh, I've probably triggered them. How did I trigger them? Like, I kind of just go to that because I'm like, well, because I wore my hair like this all of a sudden they're freaking out. Like, what the hell did I, have, you know, do? And so I go, OK, it's a trigger. But now being able to use the shadow self is actually a really beautiful language to be able to say, like, what is in their shadow self? And maybe they've squished that I'm triggering that to now rear its head. Yeah. What you're describing really beautifully, Lisa, is what I call it depersonalizing, right? Learning to pull back and have that inquiry and see 
you know, the moments where it could be about us. And this is where I say, you know, mm. having that nuance, that discretion, you know, maybe not believing strangers on the internet who never met you, but maybe do listening to those close loved ones that, you know, have your best interest and might offer you that vantage point that we were talking about earlier. And in the moments, again, where it is a heightened reaction, it is a reaction or someone's making an assessment about you that they couldn't possibly know to be true because they don't know you, then you could kind of pull back and understand things and explore things from that vantage point from a less personal yeah, they're saying and reacting to my words, my appearance, my way of being or whatever it is. But for them, it's coming from a deeper place. I don't even have to invalidate nor would I want to. Their feeling is very real. They're having a very real emotional reaction, though it might not be to me in particular, right? Just like I project similar, like we've been talking mm-hmm. about this whole conversation, right? There might be a similarity or a meaning that they've made over what they think they see or how they're perceiving or subjectively hearing what I'm saying or, or subjectively seeing how I'm presenting that, again, is very similar to something that they've lived, not invalidating what their feelings mm-hmm. and, of course, creating boundaries so I can safely allow them to have their feeling while I'm safely over here. But that's essentially the process of depersonalizing. I can understand it from a less personal perspective than I was able to in childhood. Yeah, I love that. Um, dude, as you were talking, I was like, all right, let's just go masterclass on this interview right now. So everything you're saying, once we do the work, you even said like when there are people around you that you can really trust, that's obviously very important to feel safe around you for someone to be able to maybe help you through things or point something out. What the hell do you do if there's someone that you very much trust. They've proven time and time again that they absolutely have your back, that they love you more than life itself, that they want good things for you. But their advice and feedback is all coming from their shadow self. Yeah, it's a very, very interesting question. Um, in terms of understanding, of course, the more we know about someone, right, the more than we could have even like this statement, oh, I can see where this is ultimately coming from. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have choice. We can hear we can listen. Ultimately, what we do on someone's feedback, on someone's perception, on someone's perspective is up to us. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to emphasize this because most of us as humans, all of us as humans, we want to be heard. We want our perspective to be taken into consideration. We want to know we matter. We want to know that, you know, if we are sharing our perspective, even if it's coming from our shadow self with mm-hmm. a loved one, that it's not landing on deaf ears or being argued. So there's a way, I believe, to to sensitively hear and listen, though ultimately we it is our choice what we do with the information. So then having that moment where we can hear and graciously thank someone for their feedback, their perspective, you know, we may not be able to convince them where it is coming from, even if we do have that vantage point of coming from the shadow, because ultimately we, we can offer it. It's up to them to choose it. So just as much as they can, we can hear their feedback, we then go and take, I kind of have a visual feedback from anywhere that we can receive it from, from someone's shadow, well-meaning or not. And decide for ourselves. And I, I believe that needs to be part of, of the discretion, the developing of discretion journey of humans is to have that moment in time, have that listen, not argue, not even try to convince someone that it's coming from our shadow, because if they're not willing to hear it, 
They're not going to be open to us being blue in the face, screaming and yelling or arguing it so we can receive that information. Thank you for sharing your perspective. And then we could take that to our home base. Mm-hmm. We can then go observe ourselves and see if we see from their perspective what they mean. And ultimately, we get to choose because it might not be for us. It might not be about us. It might never have been. And then we can have that choice. They feel heard. We feel empowered to continue on in the way that we know aligns with us. Oh, I love that so much. And how much then, because you talk about heart consciousness, which I love. I'd never heard that before. So talk to me about heart consciousness and how this also plays in relationships when you have these moments where you have to go in and really listen to yourself and not necessarily take your partner or a friend's thoughts and advice as fact. Yeah, so our heart is, we are now finding out very scientifically how incredibly powerful our heart is. I mean, there's so much about the human body from the shoulders down that mm. is so incredibly powerful and so full of wisdom from, from our gut, where we have those gut instincts, to, to our heart. We now know that our heart actually submits an electromagnetic field that's even more powerful than our brain. It's usually measured in how many feet away you can kind of feel the vibration or the frequency of our heart or our brain um, producing. And our heart, I think it's somewhere around six feet around us, can influence. So if there was electrodes, say, in a a glass of water, my heartbeat would be able to, if it's within that that six feet, I mean, don't quote me, I could be wrong on the exact numbers, but I think it's around six feet of our body, you would pick up my heart frequency more so than my brain frequency in in that glass of water. So our heart is not only communicating signals to the external environment, it's communicating signals to our brain. Our heart actually plays a big role in coordinating activity. We used to give our brain all of the credit. (laughs) Our brain was everything. And our brain is very, very powerful. But again, so is our gut and so is our heart. And just as much as our brain is sending information down, our heart is sending so Mm. much coordination of not only physiological, but emotional messaging up to our brain. So as far as I'm concerned, our heart is the location of that intuition, that essence, right? That kind of indescribable sensation or compass Mm. or guidance system that we're all looking for. And because so few of us are paying actually attention to our heart, not only, again, is it our interface for our environment, giving us information about how we're experiencing it. In my opinion, like I said, it is really a vessel of what makes us us? I mean, I've read, read fascinating stories of, I don't know if you've gone down the rabbit hole of any heart transplant or there's incredible stories of heart transplant stories where hearts of you know individuals who have passed get obviously implanted into a living individual. And to the surprise, I think, of everyone involved, not only memories, taste, wow. preferences begin to become evident with this idea that our heart actually has like memories that's stored in it. So Our heart is incredibly fascinating. Again, very few of us, I think, for the point of this conversation, we're not connected to our heart. Or if we are, if we have those, again, instincts, sensations, because our heart doesn't speak in our thinking mind, in the repetitive stories, it's sensations. It's kind of, uh, uh, I can't think of the word, um, little indications, aha, light bulbs, kind of things that seemingly plop into our, you know, conscious awareness seemingly out of nowhere. All of that is more of the language, body-based is the point I'm trying to make of our intuition. And if we're paying attention to our mind, if we're not even attuned to our heart, or if we are and we feel like we know what our heart wants, but we override it. 
based on what we think we should do or what we were taught to do or a million other reasons we convince ourselves out of doing those things. (laughs) And I'm of the belief that the more, again, we drop into our body, the more we learn how to reintegrate or connect, reconnect with our heart and then attune to its messages because, again, it's much more on a sensory system. We have to learn to hear. Even the way you describe I feel that Mm. kind of constriction, right, that's coming from somewhere deeper within. So learning to pay attention to those signals will, in my opinion, give us that guidance that we're looking for, giving us the moments of saying, well, wait a minute, what do I, what does my heart say about this? What does my heart want to do? And the more, of course, we can align our actions with that heart space, the more that we're allowing our intuition to guide us. That's amazing. But what about the, the so, you know, like in relationships, so many people are just like, oh, well, don't just follow your heart. Like, you know, your heart's going to lead you astray because it's like it wants something. So maybe, you know, the messaging that I've heard is your heart so wants to, let's say, be with somebody that it will be blind to certain things. People blame the heart for that. Do you, um, do you agree with that? I would question whether or not they're following their heart or their familiar relationship pattern in those moments, right? Because I think to really attune to our heart, it's, it's, it's again, learning how to, how to drop in. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of times what we're attracted to in relationships or what we think we're gravitating toward, or is coming again from that instinctive place Mm -hmm. is more maybe coming from the familiarity of that dynamic than from the deeper heart space. So when people would say, let's say, or, you know, the phrase, it's a broken heart, do you feel like that is actually the heart that's broken or that it's our perception of what this means about us, let's say stemming from a child where when we were dismissed or someone's left me, my heart breaks, but really makes me feel like I'm no good, I'm not worthy. And that produces a feeling in our heart too. So it's both Mm, and. mm. Um, Again, our heart is very much a conductor of our emotions. Our heart goes in and out of what's called coherence based on the emotion we're feeling. When we're feeling compassion, when we're feeling connection, when we're feeling love, it's described as we're in heart coherence. The rhythm of our heart actually changes when we're feeling anger, when we're feeling hurt, when we're feeling sadness. We actually did a podcast episode, Jenna and I, on heartbreak. And how very much it's in the body and it does map onto pain and a shift in our heart's rhythm. So it's and. Mm-hmm. It's what happened in childhood. Maybe it's similarity or lack thereof in what's happening now. It's still very real, producing very real feelings, which we can actually feel sometimes in our physical heart space where it does feel like it's breaking. And it maps onto mm-hmm. a physiological change in rhythm in terms of coherence versus incoherence. That's fascinating. It's really fascinating. I'm fascinated by the heart. That's incredible. And, you know, even in the book where you take people through, you know, like put your hand on your heart, take these deep breaths. So as I I was listening to on Audible, but like as I was doing it, I was putting my hand on my heart. You were coaching me through it. And as I was doing it, I was like, I don't remember the last time I put my hand on my heart. I don't know the last time that I thought about my heart. Right. And... As you were talking also, the, uh, the time that most recently sticks with me is when my puppy passed away, my dog. You know, he was 17, such a, it was Tom and I's baby. And I remember when he died, all I could do was put my hand on my heart and go, my heart's broken. I was like, my heart hurts. And I just kept repeating to Tom, like, my heart hurts. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm getting all emotional. Yeah. Well, and I don't remember the last time I ever felt like my heart hurt. And it was like I was like putting my hand on my heart and just like trying to protect it. I've never done that before. Yeah. 
I have memories in childhood. Um, one of the most visceral memories I have is laying in bed at night, and it would usually come around a recurring nightmare that I would have, and I would wake up from this nightmare, and the pressure, it would feel like someone was putting their hand straight through my heart space, and I never had language and knew what it was, and obviously now looking back, I believe it was a, a broken heart of, of not having, for me, that, that connection with really anyone in my family feeling so so deeply alone and that I remember very viscerally in childhood. I can almost call to mind what it was to feel that and it was in my heart space. And then as I grew, interestingly, my posture even, mm. for a very long time, my mom be like, stand up straight. Don't you like being tall? And, you know, I would roll my eyes at her as, you know, oftentimes an adolescent, a teenager does like, oh, mom, yeah. you know? And again, I now view it through the lens of I was protecting this whole kind of hunched posture, as least the sense I've made of it, was coming from quite literally a broken heart of no fault of my mom or my family's own, mm, of their sure. inability of themselves to even be connected to themselves, let alone me, of a broken heart. And then my whole postural right protection that then translated to this distance in relationships, never acting like I had feelings because I was never going to let my heart be broken again. And it was, then again, that visceral feeling in the heart that I can even recollect now of like, <gasps> almost like takes my breath away feeling. Oh my God, you're tapping into something so strong right now. Um, I love learning new things. I love evolving. And so when it comes to our lives, how we show up, how we feel about ourselves, how we show up in other relationships, you know, we've spoken so much, you know, me and you have spoken about trauma in the past, you know, in other interviews, when we talk about the mind, we talk about the gut, talking about the mind-gut connection, but this new piece that you've just introduced to my life, girl, is really powerful, um, and so I'm just going to, like, really sit with it, like, I don't even know why I got all emotional, like, it's a, and even this, I don't ever judge myself, like, I'm like, oh, why am I getting emotional, what is this new thing, mm -hmm. maybe you are tapping into this new thing of way of thinking, which now is unlocking more in my life and in other people's lives, and, you know, I think of this thing as being information that now I can use to think through past issues, think through issues that I'm going through, so thank you so much for, like, introducing this to my life as well as like you know in of the book course. about heart consciousness yeah absolutely so you'll meet the heart in the the third section which i strategically put at the end right mm -hmm. once we are safe in our bodies to attune to the emotions we can explore our ego our shadow self and then peel back all those layers and then you know we do meet kind of attuning to the heart in terms of our authentic self and learning how to drop in and allow that to speak and i'm so passionate about that the book that I'm also finishing writing that I was sharing about relationships yeah. actually is going to be grounded in heart coherence, oh in the science of, it's called how to be the love you seek, um, mm -hmm. to really embody, right, that return to that heart, that coherent space, learning how to attune and then be that love outwardly. Oh my God, well, I can't wait for that. But for now, where on earth can people get this amazing workbook, How to Meet Yourself? Yes, absolutely. How to Meet Yourself is available on, I think, pretty much all major retailers at this point. Um, I have a website up, uh, howtomeetyourself.com, as well as an Instagram, so you can take a look. I'll have a lot of retailers highlighted on that website. Um, and of course, follow me on all the social media channels um, for new up-to-date content information and my website theholisticpsychologist.com is a great place to stay connected. Oh my god. Guys, guys, this woman, apart from that, that fact that I freaking love her just as a human, the amount of value she brings to people's lives, every time I meet her, she literally introduces something new to my life that I can then implement so that I can show up as a better, more confident badass. So guys, honestly, go get this book. It will literally change your life as long 
as you are open to wanting your life to be changed. And until next time, guys, be the hero of your own life and go meet yourself. Peace.